Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Well, today's message is from the first Sunday of the season of Lent. And like churches around the world, we are looking at the passage in Luke that speaks of the three wilderness temptations of Jesus. Really what we're looking at is, is the temptations to motivations uh, which can actually sabotage our journey in the long run and temptations which we are most of the time blind to. So the title of this message is called Three Motivations That Can Sabotage Your Journey. And this is really important for us to look into because before Jesus ever does a miracle, before he ever preaches a sermon, he really wins the battle in a place of solitude in the wilderness. So let's have the talk. North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. So, many years ago, I was in college at SLU, and I wanted to be a music major, and they wouldn't let me because I didn't know how to read music. And I tried being a Spanish major, and I realized speaking Spanish fluently was actually hard. I grew up out in West Texas, and and many of my friends were Hispanics, but I found out that they taught me most of the words you can't use in public. Hey, man, go tell this girl this. <laughs> Smack. So eventually I settled on history. Uh, I was about two years into my uh, college experience, and I, I, I became a history major. Uh, I didn't really actually go to college to get a degree initially, which is kind of funny because I, uh, I was working with a college ministry, and they lost their college pastor. And so next thing I know, I'm the pastor out there, but I'm not going to college. But it was the first time in my life I had a bit of an incarnational impulse, you know, the, the incarnation of Christ. God loves us by stepping into our world and becoming one of us. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to connect with college students, and, and I, I might ought to try living in their world. So I didn't initially go to college to get a degree. I was just like, this is the best, best way to understand what they're experiencing. And... Um, but eventually, I was like, oh, I could actually have a degree at some point. So I ended up going into history because I thought history was one of the, the few things that I could use to kind of maybe, if not, you know, because they didn't offer seminary or religion at SLU. But I figured history was something that I could use to maybe at least kind of understand some of the context of ancient peoples uh, throughout the world. And so some of my favorite stuff that I learned over the years was about ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient China, or even the oldest civilizations like the Sumerians. And one, one saying that you come across in history oftentimes is, or, or people studying history, is history is written by the victors. Have you ever heard that saying before? There's something along those lines on, on the intro of Braveheart. Um, but... Um, you know, history is written by those who kill heroes. Right, okay, I'm not even going to try my, my, my Irish accent. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and, and the reality is that is fairly true. A lot of the writings that, that come to us from ancient times were the writings of those who had empires, who were really established, and they conquered a lot of people. Uh, you know, if, if you think about American history, you know, I don't, I don't know when y'all took American history in Louisiana, but I think for me it was in high school. And 
in American history in high school, you get a version of American history, right? It's the version of the winners, right? So you get the story of the people who won and they recorded the most important things to them. And so you get a certain view about the British and the French and the Spanish and Mexico and and the Native Americans. You get the view of those who won the war. And if you had a history book written by the Cherokee people, it would be a very different story. (laughs) The ones we call heroes would, would not be the heroes in their story. What is interesting to me about the Bible is that the Bible is one of the few ancient books that wasn't written by the winners. You realize that? I mean, the the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, they were a very small group of people. Their religion, Judaism, it was not evangelistic. I mean, they weren't going throughout the world trying to get people to convert. They would allow you to convert, although, you know, pretty hard conversion process because, you know, it involved circumcision. And um, that doesn't work great for evangelism, especially when you're 30 years old or something. Um, But it is interesting when you read the Old Testament, so much of the Old Testament wasn't written in times of prosperity. It was written in times of struggle. I've actually read from Bible scholars that have made the point that much of the Old Testament was actually written down during the darkest time in Israel's history in the Old Testament, the, the, the Babylonian captivity, about 600 B.C. So it, it's, it's quite fascinating when you think about that, that these people are writing down the stories in the midst of exile because they're trying to figure out, why are we in exile? What is the answer? Is it like Adam and Eve who got kicked out of the garden because they, they, they disobeyed God? Is it like... Is there some bigger purpose in this? Like when the the children of Israel were uh, in slavery in Egypt for 400 years? Is this like Joseph in the Old Testament who was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and, and ends up, you know, in the dungeon in Egypt only to be lifted up by God and made second in charge of the whole country? How is this the result of their sin? Is it the result of some mysterious purpose that they don't know? Is it the result of just other nations being envious of their position and, you know, just wanting to, to, to throw them away? And then you come to the New Testament. A lot of people think that Christianity just broke off of Judaism like that, but really for the first several decades, Christianity was considered just a sect of Judaism where, you know, the, the, they believed that the Messiah had come, and it was Jesus. So if, if the Old Testament was written by not the victors, but by a minority group of people with a minority religion, then the New Testament was a sect of that minority religion. I mean, it's about as obscure as you can get. I don't think anybody in the first century that saw this young group of people who were following Christ would have ever thought that this thing would become a dominant world religion. It made no sense. I mean, after all, the center of the Christian faith is this Jesus who was crucified. And if you, even if you're looking at the ministry of Jesus, I mean, I have been to so many, I've heard so many church growth consultants over the years. Um, if you looked at the ministry of Jesus, he would have failed everything. He would have failed it all. I mean, he had 12 knucklehead disciples who all turned their back on him. One betrayed him. They all turned their back on him. In his moment of worst darkness, um, 
He got crucified, executed publicly. It is not a story of success from the outside. Of course, we, we know that there's more to the story. But I, I think one of the reasons why the Bible has become really the foundation of Western civilization, the most read book in the world, even though it was written by a people who weren't the victors, is because the story does not explain away mystery. It doesn't explain away suffering. It doesn't say to just follow this formula and everything's going to go right with you. I mean, I am, I'm just blown away by how many conversations. You know, the Bible has these conversations going back and forth. If you read the book of Proverbs, it can sound very formulaic. Like, you know, do this, fear God, you know, treat people right, and everything's going to go well with you. But then you have something like the book of Job that comes along. It's like, Job is the most righteous dude on planet Earth, and boy, he just goes through it. You've got this conversation between the dominant narrative and the counter-narrative, and, and people are wrestling through their grief, their questions. They're wrestling through what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be faithful to the covenant? What does it mean to be blessed even? And I think one of the reasons why this book of the Bible has, has helped so many people out is that it invites us to not deny the hard stuff that we're going through, but to wrestle through it with God and encounter God in our weakness, in our hunger, in our thirst, in our lack, in our grieving. That's one of the most powerful things of the Bible to me is that, I mean, I've said this before, but like the book of Psalms, man, I love that book because it's like, there's some honest stuff here. <laughs> Where are you, God? <laughs> Why are the bad guys winning? Why are those who are faithful to you, you know, getting run down? What do I do when my best friends are turning their back against me? Or, or, or even, God, I've, I've just sinned against heaven. Creating me a clean heart. We can all identify with that. The Bible's not a self-help book. It is not something that is going to answer every question in your life, but it invites you to wrestle. It invites you to encounter the Spirit when things aren't going good, when things defy easy explanations. And I say all that because what we're looking at this morning, we're in the first Sunday of the season of Lent. And Lent, you know, I grew up out in West Texas. I don't think I ever heard of Lent until I moved to Louisiana. Lent was just something you got in the dryer. <laughs> I'm still not quite sure what Lent means. I probably ought to look that up. Um, but I remember when I first moved to Louisiana, it was an odd thing to experience. We're, we're going we're gonna to fast. We're not going to eat meat for Lent. We're just going to eat fried catfish. And grilled oysters, and boiled crawfish, <laughs> shrimp po' boys. We're going to be suffering for Jesus. <laughs> and that's when I knew I liked Louisiana. I don't know what this Lent thing is, but I like this mentality down here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I remember at first thinking, Lent seems kind of weird. It, it seems like, you know, are, these, are, are we trying to deny ourselves so we can get God to bless us? It, it seemed like some people would do it like that. But I've really come to see that Lent is such a powerful time because it is really a season for us to get in touch with our hunger, with our thirst, 
with our own desires to encounter God in the dark side of things, to encounter God in our questions. And the first Sunday of Lent, which we are at today, we look at Jesus' wilderness temptation. Now, I'll give a little context through this before we get into the actual story. Jesus has gone down to the River Jordan and been baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, you know, before Jesus gets baptized, he's like, look, you ought to baptize me. And and Jesus says, no, no, this is the right thing to do. And so John the Baptist baptizes him in the River Jordan. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, it says the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And you need to hear this this morning because this is important. Jesus had never, he hadn't done a miracle yet. He hadn't preached the Sermon on the Mount. Before Jesus does anything, he is affirmed by God. I love you just because you exist. And some of you need to hear that this morning. You were loved. You were loved extravagantly by God just because you are God's child. It's not about what you do. It's not all the, about all the good things that you can You are loved just because you exist. That's the place we start this thing. And that's where Jesus starts. He starts being blessed by God. Holy Spirit comes upon him. This, this kind of reminds me of the passage we talked about last week, the, the transfiguration. What is Peter's response when all this crazy stuff happens on top of this mountain? Jesus is like glowing brightly, and there's Moses and Elijah, and the cloud of God's presence comes around and says, this is my son. Listen to him. <laughs> Peter's like, this is great. Let's just stay up on this mountain. <laughs> And oftentimes, I've noticed in my own life, when I've had a powerful experience with God, I'm like, this is the best thing ever. I just want to do this forever. I mean, I I remember a friend of mine years ago, he he heard about some place in the country where they had like 24-hour worship services just going on all the time. He's like, man, I just want to quit my job and take my family and move up there and worship God all the time. I'm like, yeah, duh, no no kidding. (laughs) But Jesus and Peter and James and John, they had to come back down the mountain. (laughs) Jesus is affirmed by his father. The Holy Spirit comes upon him at his baptism. And then this is where we pick up the story because it says, and it depends on the translation, but but in Matthew it says, the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness. This one it says, led. Led, drove, whatever. That beautiful moment down by the Jordan, things are about to get real. (laughs) Jesus goes into a time of fasting here. So I think this is, uh, yeah, this is on your bulletin. And I'm just, I'm going to take this a few verses at a time. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. We're going to see three temptations of of Jesus in this passage today. And I'm going to borrow heavily from Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite Christian writers on spirituality, um, because... He wrote some stuff about this that I was like, I can't do any better than that. But um, the first temptation is 
to be relevant. What is more relevant when you've gone 40 days without food than having something to eat, right? Just answer the immediate need. I mean, this isn't even just like, this isn't relevant in the sense of like, you know, trying to be culturally cool. This is like, dude, 40 days without eating. And Jesus answered, man shall not live on bread alone. It's, it's interesting. All three of Jesus' answers to the temptations come out of Deuteronomy, They're tied into the Exodus story, which is really symbolic here because even last week when I was saying that when Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain, it was was a parallel story with Moses going on to the top of the mountain. When Moses comes down the mountain after being surrounded by God's presence, he brings down the law. When Jesus comes down the mountain, he brings freedom. This is a parallel story. The, the children of Israel, they, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is fasting for 40 days. And Jesus' first answer really gives us a clue to what Jesus has been meditating on. He says, man shall not live on bread alone. If you look up Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's the end of the Exodus, and God tells the children of Israel, he says, this is the reason that I led you through the wilderness these 40 years was to humble you and to to test you. I fed you with manna every day so that you would come to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Food is important. We need food. But there's something that we need that's deeper than food. And Jesus knew that. It's it's an interesting thing when you think about manna in the in the book of Exodus. God, imagine as the story goes, the the, the Hebrew people formed their entire ethnic identity under four centuries of slavery. I mean, they turned into a people entirely under slavery. Imagine what that would be like. I mean, in America, I mean, we're what this country is a little over two hundred years old um, officially. Americans, we have some strong beliefs on things, you know? I mean, we're, we're rugged individuals. We think, you know, anything, you know, you can just pull yourself up. Uh, you, we got this American mentality, and, and you, you notice it when you go to other countries. Other people notice it. We probably don't. But imagine if we had grown up under 400 years of slavery, how that would shape your mind, how that would inform your psyche, your dad, and mom were slaves. Their gran- your grandparents were slaves. Their parents were slaves. Generations and generations of people who just made bricks. Just put your head down, make bricks, get your identity in what you produce, and Pharaoh's going to give you some food. God takes them out of Egypt and comes up with this weird way to feed them, manna, which means, what is it? what is it man (laughs) it's manna cool and they would they would they would pick as this bread-like substance that would appear on the ground they would make stuff out of it and eat it but here's the thing with manna you couldn't like store up but you couldn't like i'm gonna go like just work hard for manna all day and i'll get enough for the next two weeks because your manna would be rotten the next day it would have maggots in it just high in protein and so, you know, what's the saying go? The, the, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. This is, exa- this is where that comes from, I think, you know, because God is, is forming 
their spiritual identity through the food they eat. They can't get enough food to last two weeks, two months. They have to trust the same guy that gave them food today is going to give them food tomorrow. I'm reminded about the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I think most of us want to pray, give me bread for like the next five years, God. You know, give me a good retirement. Give me, you know, make sure everything is settled five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. That's the way we think. But, G- but God changes their mindset daily as they have to learn that it is their relationship with God that really counts. It's not just about bread. Because every time they go out there and they gather the food, God is changing that, that psychology within them that, that said, you are only what you produce. You are only what you make. That your health and well-being is tied to the economy of slavery in Egypt. Forty years, God was humbling them and testing them so that they would know that ultimately the thing in which our security rests, in which our sustenance rests, is our relationship with God. Henry Nouwen writes this, In a variety of ways we are made to believe that we are what we produce. This leads to a preoccupation with products, visible results, tangible goods, and progress. The temptation to be relevant is difficult to shake since it is usually not considered a temptation, but a call. Oh, shut up. Jesus did not deny the importance of bread, but rather relativized it in comparison with the nurturing power of the word of God. Bread is given to us by God so that we will entrust ourselves completely to God's word. We are not the bread we offer, but people who are fed by the word, capital W, who's that? Jesus, by the word of God, and thereby find true selfhood. The radical challenge is to let God and the divine word shape and reshape us as human beings to feast each day on the word and thus grow into free and fearless people. That's why I got to quote Henry now. He's just the bomb. The bomb. Does anybody use that anymore? I'm bringing it back. Bringing back the bomb. Let's, let's go back to the passage. the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of it. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this next temptation is the temptation to be powerful. The mystery of the Christian life is that we are called to serve not through our power, but through our powerlessness. 
As Henry Nouwen writes, it is through powerlessness that we can enter into solidarity with our fellow human beings, form a community with the weak, and thus reveal the healing, guiding, and sustaining mercy of God. I got to tell you, over the years, when Dina and I have experienced some issue, whether it's a, you know, a relationship issue, you know, problems between us, or a financial issue, or even problems with our own kids or whatever, you know the people that I'm searching out for help? It's not somebody with a little degree on their wall. It's not somebody with a piece of paper. I don't care about that so much. What I care is I want to find somebody that has actually been broken in the way that I'm broken and been healed of it. That They've actually come to wholeness. I got to tell you, I was talking to Shane about this the other day. It, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. Some of the hardest things that I've ever experienced in the church because I went through the process of healing those have actually become the places that I actually have the most authority in to, to actually help people today. It's not the stuff that I've, you know, I, I think education is great. I'm a big fan of it. It's good to go to seminary and learn, you know, about the Bible and stuff. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that stuff doesn't give you wisdom. It just tells you information. Information does not equal transformation. <laughs> The, the beauty of the Christian story is Jesus shows us a way in which our weaknesses, our brokenness, the, the struggles that we've been through actually become the place of our, our greatest authority, become the place of our greatest power, our, our greatest love and compassion and wisdom for others. Jesus, uh, the, the, the second temp- temptation would be the temptation to be powerful. And you know, I, I, think, I think there's very few things that have hurt the church in America the last four decades than the way that the church has aligned so much with politics. I mean, I'm telling you, this has produced probably more atheists in our country than anything because a lot of people from my generation have grown up seeing the church so attached to politics and so grasping for political power and influence and trying to, you know, push policies that they've actually began to see in the last 10 years that it really never had anything to do with Jesus all along. People had confused politics for their Christianity. They confused grasping for power and influence with the kingdom of God, which the kingdom of God has never come that way. It didn't come that way with the early church. You realize when the early church, you know, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, it was not because Christians were picketing Rome and trying to, you know, we need the Ten Commandments on the, on the, on the walls of whatever the thing in Rome is, you know, where they... <laughs> it was because of the power of God coming through their weakness. It was because of what God was doing in hidden ways. It wasn't grasping for power, but it was the power of God demonstrated from down under. Through weakness. The last temptation. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished these tempting, 
he had left him until an opportune time. This is the temptation to be spectacular. Now, now, something interesting about these three temptations, if, if you notice them, they're not the seven deadly sins, right? This isn't lust, greed, pride. This is not the things that we usually focus on. But I tell you what, they're every bit as, as dangerous in our lives because they get at the, at the place of our ultimate trust. Isn't it interesting Satan comes to him quoting scripture? <laughs> I'm going to quote from the book of Psalms, Jesus. Show, prove that you're the son of God. Throw yourself down. The angels will pick you up. We are enamored by the spectacular. Everybody wants a spectacular marriage. Everybody wants a spectacular church. We are drawn to the smoke and the lights and the glitz and the glamour. We love that stuff. You take that away, we wouldn't have Instagram. You know what I mean? That, that, that's the, the, most of Instagram is, I want to look spectacular. <laughs> Henry Nowen writes this. It's about to get real. He says, who am I when nobody pays attention, says thanks, or recognizes my work? The more insecure, doubtful, and lonely we are, the greater our need for popularity and praise. Sadly, this hunger is never satisfied. The hunger for human acceptance is like a bottomless barrel. It can never be filled. Indeed, the search for spectacular glitter is an expression of doubt and God's complete and unconditional acceptance of us. It is indeed putting God to the test, saying, I'm not sure that you really care, that you really love me, that you really consider me worthwhile. I will give you a chance to show it by soothing my inner fears with human praise and by alleviating my sense of worthlessness by human applause. We are not the votes we receive but rather we are who God has made us in love, children of the light, children of God. Only a life of ongoing intimate communion with God can reveal to us our true selfhood. Only such a life can set us free to act according to the truth and not according to our need for the spectacular. Just read that a few times this week. We are tempted to relevance. We are tempted to power. We are tempted to the spectacular. And look, it's, it's not that being spectacular or powerful or relevant or are bad in and of themselves. That's, that's not, you know. I mean, we talked this morning about collecting food for the hungry people. That is a way of being relevant to people who need something. But ultimately, this is what distinguishes us from just a nonprofit organization who is just handling the needs of people is ultimately this comes out of our worship of God. This comes out of our relationship with God. That is the first thing. As Jesus said, we seek him first. We seek the kingdom of God first. And we trust our lives that all our needs are going to be taken care of. So to close this morning, as we contemplate this, this story of Jesus, I want us to come to the one who is the bread of life this morning. We are going to take communion. And as we take of this bread this morning, representing the body of Christ broken for us. We remember this Jesus who was tempted in the wilderness. 
We get in touch with our own hunger, our own lack of trust in God to meet our hunger. We come to this cup representing the blood of Christ shed for our sins. And we say thanks for the life that it represents within us. So why don't you stand? We'll invite our, uh, we do have gluten-free communion at the back. We'll have our, our communion folks up here. And this table is open for anybody who is moving towards God in any way. So just feel free to come up and then we will close.